High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. We've been on hiatus for a month, and during that time, the world mourned the death of Lauren Bacall, the fashion model turned star of stage and screen, whose 13-year relationship with Humphrey Bogart remains in top five territory when it comes to Hollywood romances untrammeled by scandal or divorce. In the coming weeks, we will pay tribute to that relationship, first by exploring the 40-something years of Bogart's life before he met Bacall, and then we'll discuss how Lauren Bacall kept herself occupied for 57 years after her famous first husband's death. But Bacall and her life and her death, her beauty and her inimitable screen presence, also has something to do with today's story. Lauren Bacall became an instant superstar when she was cast in Howard Hawks' To Have and Have Not in 1944, when Bacall was just 19. Movie stardom was different in 1944 than it would be even a few years later, after World War II, and particularly after the rise of television. Going into 2014, there were arguably only two real veterans left from that first era of post-silent stardom, Mickey Rooney and Lauren Bacall. And now, both are gone. Whether or not Lauren Bacall was the last survivor of a certain type of classical Hollywood stardom, she was definitely the last survivor 
of a certain late 20th century reflection-slash-appropriation of that lost era. The glamour gal and guy name-drop rap bridge from Madonna's 1990 single, Vogue. Today we bring you the first part of a two-part episode in which we are going to talk about Madonna and movies, although only briefly about Madonna movies. In name-dropping those 16 stars in Vogue, Madonna defined a sensibility of then-contemporary glamour in dialogue with classic film. But this was just the greatest and most literal act of cinephilia in a period in which the life and career of the biggest female pop star of her time was driven by her passion for movies, a passion which manifested itself in her self-conscious emulation of classical Hollywood stars, her repeated use of music videos as the vehicle for a kind of sophisticated, insanely high-profile old movie fan fiction, her apparent compulsion to become a movie star herself, to the point of steamrolling through numerous indications that it wasn't going to work out, and her attractions to movie stars. Madonna recorded Vogue while still promoting Like a Prayer, the 1989 album that she wrote and recorded in the wake of her divorce from actor Sean Penn. Madonna promoted Like a Prayer through two years of touring and the making of landmark music videos, a marketing blitz through which she directly or indirectly referenced all manner of hallmarks of film history, from Fritz Lang's Metropolis to Orson Welles' Citizen Kane to La Dolce Vita. While still selling this divorce album, Madonna started a new relationship with Warren Beatty, who cast Madonna in the mole role in his film Dick Tracy. The period bookended by these two relationships with two Hollywood stars is the most fascinating period of Madonna's career. Not because of who she was sleeping with, but because of what those relationships reflect about who she was and what she wanted, and because of what she took from those failed romances and turned into both pop music and also promotion of pop music that became something like an art in itself. Join us, won't you, for part one of a two-part story, Madonna, from Sean to Warren. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. 
Our story begins in the early 1980s, when Madonna Veronica Louise Ciccioni, a 20-year-old from suburban Detroit, drops out of college, buses to New York, and starts living hand-to-mouth, trying to get work as a dancer, but mostly posing for photographers and drawing classes. Where Madonna quickly got used to, as she put it later, staring at people, staring at me naked. New York was a shithole, and she had no money. Everything smelled like piss and puke, including her apartment building, where she was raped at knife point by a stranger before the end of her first year in town. She started charming her way into the downtown scene, hanging out at clubs like Danceteria, befriending artists like Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring, both of whom were Warhol disciples, as, in a way, Madonna herself would become, as an artist whose essential medium and subject was celebrity. Eventually, backup dancing for other club acts led to her fronting her own group, and within about four years, Madonna had transformed herself into a solo pop star. Her scrappy sexuality and extraordinarily telegenic presence made her one of the first icons of MTV. She was media savvy, smart, and insanely ambitious. And though her songs would pass as legitimate pop confections, they would also smuggle a kind of conceptual art about women and their bodies into the Reagan-era mainstream. She loved movies, and she had a childish longing for that kind of stardom. Maybe because it seemed like the only thing big enough to fit her ambitions. In January 1984, she went on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. I think I've always had a lot of confidence in myself. We are, we are a couple of weeks into the new year. What do you hope will happen, not only in 1984, but for the rest of your professional life? What are your dreams? What's left? Mm, to rule the world. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Madonna. But before all that, one of her neighbors in downtown Manhattan was Susan Seidelman, an NYU film school grad who had made Smithereens, a movie about a girl not unlike Madonna, or Seidelman herself, a girl who left suburbia and moved to the East Village to make art, but found that the would-be artists there didn't actually make much art, given that their schedules were pretty much full navigating Nightmare New York with no money. Smithereens played in competition at the Cannes Film Festival, a big deal for any American indie filmmaker, never mind a woman, And it got Seidelman a job directing another film about a suburban woman who gets in over her head on the Lower East Side. She cast a number of downtown personalities, Richard Hell and Susan Berman from Smithereens, Richard Edson from Stranger Than Paradise, and her producers attached Rosanna Arquette for one of the two female leads. And then they started auditioning up-and-coming actresses for the other female lead. Ellen Barkin, Melanie Griffith, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Kelly McGillis... They all read, and Seidelman turned them all down. She wanted someone authentic, someone who had that thing that the other downtown kids she was casting had, but who also had star power. And after a few screen tests, Seidelman's neighbor, Madonna, became the Susan in Desperately Seeking Susan. This was after Madonna's first self-titled album was released, but before she had really become a star. The video for her single Lucky Star hit steady rotation on MTV as she was auditioning for Desperately Seeking Susan. The one-two-three punch of the singles Borderline, Lucky Star, and Holiday 
made Madonna the pop ingenue of the moment. The bustier and rosaries look created for her by her friend and stylist Maripole inspiring hordes of Madonna wannabes the world over. By the time Desperately Seeking Susan was released in March 1985, Like a Virgin had come out, and Madonna's star had expanded. She went from basically being the equivalent of Lord in the summer of 2013 to basically being the equivalent of Beyonce, the summer of Crazy in Love. Madonna was such a big deal at this point that her record label basically gave her free reign when it came to creative promotion. Madonna and her frequent collaborator, director Mary Lambert, got a blank check to shoot the Like a Virgin video in the Venice Canals. That paid off. And when it came time to shoot a second video for the Like a Virgin album for the song Material Girl, Madonna came up with the idea of emulating Marilyn Monroe, aping the scene from Howard Hawks' 1953 film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, in which Monroe sings Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, an anthem casting gold digging as empowerment, encouraging women who are going to be sexually exploited anyway to at least make sure it's worth their while. Diamonds are a girl's best friend There may come a time when a Hard-boiled employer thinks you're awful nice But get that ice or else no dice He's your guy when stocks are high But beware when they start to descend It's then that those louses go back to their spouses Diamonds are a girl's best friend the Material Girl video was intended as a sincere homage to Marilyn, but at the same time, it was designed by Madonna and Mary Lambert to be anything but sincere in its celebration of materialism. The video has two narrative layers. There's the part with Madonna dressed in an exact replica of Marilyn's dress from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, dancing and lip-syncing on an exact replica of the Diamonds Are Forever stage. But this performance is not set up in traditional music video fashion as a performance done by Madonna directly for the MTV viewer. There's another narrative layer in which Madonna is first stepped to by some guy who, as she puts it in a line of dialogue, thinks he can impress her by giving her expensive gifts. And then pursued by Keith Carradine, who plays a cigar-smoking movie producer who skulks around on the edges of the stage where Madonna's performing the Marilyn act, and then pretends to be poor, hastily paying a worker for his pickup truck and using it to pick Madonna up for a date. The video ends with Madonna and Carradine making out in the truck, the issue of his true identity apparently unresolved, but probably not a problem. The Material Girl video does double duty. It positions Madonna as both a celebrity and beauty icon in the same trajectory as Marilyn Monroe, and also as someone who can put on a role like that and then go back to a normal, down-to-earth life. In other words, it positions her as an actress. Of course, that's not how it was received. It was received as though Madonna was casting herself as the poster girl for 80s excess. Even in complaining about that misinterpretation turned typecasting, Madonna pulled out an old Hollywood reference. When I'm 90, I'll still be the material girl, she said. I guess it's not so bad. Lana Turner was the sweater girl until the day she died. As Madonna's declaration of intent to take her place in the canon of Hollywood history, the Material Girl video was hugely symbolic. Making the video also opened a door for Madonna onto the Hollywood present. It was on set that Madonna met the man who would become her first husband, 
Sean Penn. In 1985, Sean Penn was 24 years old. His dad, Leo Penn, had trained at the Actors Studio, and after being blacklisted for refusing to name names to the House Un-American Activities Committee, Leo became a TV director. Sean and his brothers Michael and Chris grew up in Malibu, where there was a community of young dudes who wanted to be actors. Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, and Charlie Sheen. Sean had gone to New York to do theater, where he was spotted and cast in his first movie, Taps. Then came his turn as stoner Jeff Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Why don't you get a job, Spicoli? What for? You need money. <laughs> All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. This movie made Sean Penn both a movie star and a cult figure. In March 1983, Penn's face was on the cover of Rolling Stone. The headline called him the next James Dean. In the early to mid-80s, teenage girls ran around wearing lace belly shirts and giant crosses in tribute to Madonna. Teenage boys ran around imitating Penn in Fast Times. Whatever else they had in common. And it wasn't much. In 1985, Madonna and Sean Penn were both 20-somethings who had projected an outsized image, an image that at once embodied something specific about their present tense moment, and also referred back to an earlier era of Hollywood stardom. But Penn wasn't interested in stardom for the sake of stardom. He had refused to promote a movie starring him and his then-girlfriend, Elizabeth McGovern, by doing a couple spread in People magazine. He idolized great actors and filmmakers and wanted to be in their company. In 1984, at a bar on the Sunset Strip, he ran into Harry Dean Stanton. Stanton was about to go to Cannes for the premiere of Paris, Texas. Sean happened to have his passport with him. So he asked Harry Dean Stanton if he could tag along. And Harry Dean Stanton said, Uh, okay. In France, Penn met Mikhail Baryshnikov and Roman Polanski, and then he continued on to Paris with Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. He came back to Los Angeles, determined to get for himself an actor-director relationship like the one Bobby De Niro had with Martin Scorsese. And for a while, he had it with James Foley, with the two of them even sharing a house while they were prepping the film at close range. One afternoon, Foley and Penn were hanging out at home, watching MTV, and Madonna came on the screen. Penn wanted to meet her. He called his former assistant, who he knew had gotten a job on the set of Madonna's new video. He asked if he could come visit. This scene, in which a man with already established Hollywood cred would fall in love with Madonna's face on a screen, would be paralleled, sort of, in a prologue tacked to the beginning of the finished video, in which Carradine's movie producer and his lackey, played by Robert Wool, are seen in a darkened screening room, watching footage of Madonna rehearsing, and have this exchange. She's fantastic. I knew she'd be a star. She could be. She could be great. She could be a major star. She is a star, George. The biggest star in the universe right now as we speak. Those love the set. The director's got all kinds of things. The director's hot. He's hip. He's here. He's going to be doing all kinds of things. He's going to change the color of the set. I like. He's going to get a great idea for a blue. Don't change anything, George. He touches one thing. He's gone. I swear. He's history. I want to meet her. You got it. Anytime. Name the place. Name anywhere. Any street. You got it. Now. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
and it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At the time that she was making this video, Madonna was sort of half-dating Prince. And she also had a crush on Keith Carradine, who she had seen in a half-dozen or so Robert Altman and Alan Rudolph movies, and had actually cast him in the video as an excuse to make out with him. But on the charisma scale, Carradine was one thing, and Prince was another, but to a woman with a habit of running toward risk, Sean Penn was next level. He made an immediate impression. By being kind of a dick, half-negging Madonna for her Marilyn getup, Madonna called him on his shit. What's the matter with you? She snapped. You don't even say hello? You just go straight for the insult? Is that what you do? You don't even say, it's nice to meet you? But Penn knew what he was doing. And it worked. They started going out. In New York, they hit the clubs. In Los Angeles, Madonna took Sean on a pilgrimage to Marilyn Monroe's mausoleum at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. From the beginning, the relationship was tempestuous. He was threatened by her highly sexual image and obstinate focus on career. She was torn between her professional ambition and a real compulsion ingrained in her from an Italian-American Catholic upbringing to please her husband and fulfill her destiny as a mother. But mostly, they had opposite approaches to fame. She loved the spotlight and did anything for publicity. He aggressively courted privacy. She even got in the habit of tipping off the paparazzi to let them know where she was going to be. Sean, meanwhile, developed a habit of greeting the paparazzi with his fists. Madonna embarked on her first world tour, and Penn went down to Tennessee to shoot at close range. She came to visit, and he asked her to marry him. They knew that if word got out that they were engaged, there would be a media frenzy. So Penn told his betrothed not to tell anybody. She didn't, except for Rosanna Arquette, who told somebody who told somebody. And then, suddenly, in Nowheresville, Tennessee, Madonna and Sean found themselves barricaded into a hotel room, so surrounded by paparazzi that, mostly, they couldn't leave. One day, the coast looked clear, and Madonna and Sean emerged out into the parking lot, holding hands, only to be ambushed by two photographers from Rupert Murdoch's The Sun. Penn went ballistic. He hit the photographers with a rock, and then his fists and then their own cameras. He was arrested and dragged into night court and released on bail. The next day, the tabloids led with images of Sean Penn in mid-swing. Madonna and Sean planned to marry on the night of August 16th, her birthday the day before his. Madonna made a big show of banning the media from the ceremony, waiting until the last moment to tell guests the exact address of the location, a hilltop estate in Malibu. Well, maybe she waited until the moment before the last moment, because at the last moment, every tabloid reporter and photographer in Los Angeles was tipped off to the address. Helicopters hovered so close to the property the Madonna had to hold her veil down so that it wouldn't blow away. Penn reportedly grabbed a gun, ran outside, 
and fired maniacally at the choppers, who were flying so close to one another that it seemed like a miracle there wasn't a crash. He said later, I would have been very excited to see one of those helicopters burn and the bodies inside melt. They were non-people to me. I have never shot a firearm at anything I considered to be a life form. To his wedding guests, in the moment, Penn said, Welcome to the remaking of Apocalypse Now. A gun-toting Sean Penn isn't visible in the aerial photographs that circulated from the event, but those photographs do show the words fuck you scrawled in the sand of the beach below the wedding location. In his diaries, wedding guest Andy Warhol called it the most exciting weekend of my life. Ensconced in marital bliss, Madonna started working on her next album, True Blue, the first record in which she would have a hand writing every song. True Blue spawned a bunch of hits. The title track, Papa Don't Preach, La Ila Bonita, but it's not exactly a great advertisement for Madonna's songwriting talent. It's full of filler, most of it on the level of the justifiably forgotten third track, White Heat, which begins with a sample from the Jimmy Cagney movie of the same name. Come on, get up. Get your hands up. Meanwhile, Sean Penn started trying to get Dennis Hopper to direct him in Barfly, sometimes bringing Madonna with him when he'd go down to San Pedro to spend the night with Charles Bukowski. That movie didn't work out. And instead, the husband and wife signed on to co-star in Shanghai Surprise. (laughs) Shanghai Surprise is remembered today as a legendary bomb, the kind that spawns the question, why does this even exist? Well, the big reason was that Madonna really wanted to make a movie with her husband, and with Barfly stalled, Penn didn't have another movie to do. Legit movie stardom was Madonna's endgame, and by late 1985, Desperately Seeking Susan had been released and convinced the world that maybe she could pull it off. But Shanghai Surprise was cursed from the get-go. Producer George Harrison would say that he made the mistake of taking a project into production with, quote, the wrong script, the wrong director, and the wrong stars. Madonna said she felt completely bullied and out of control. Sean Penn said, I just stayed drunk the whole fucking time. Within hours of arriving in Macau for the shoot, Penn was in jail on charges of attempted murder. He had brought with him his private kickboxing coach turned bodyguard, and just as they entered their hotel suite, a guy popped out of nowhere with a camera. Startled, paranoid, angry, Penn and his security detail grabbed the guy and hung him out the ninth story window. This uh, misunderstanding was eventually cleared up, but it was a hell of a way to set the tone on the set of an already misbegotten film. And it wasn't an isolated incident. The two things that consistently set Penn off were any and all indications that his wife was attracted or attractive to other men and photographers the presence of which he blamed on Madonna. Early in their relationship, in a jealous fit over Prince, Sean punched a hole in the wall, and Madonna thought it was cute. She took it as a sign of his devotion. A year into their marriage, at a nightclub in LA, Penn beat up a songwriter who Madonna had said had come onto her before they were even married. At a dinner party at their house, Sean caught Madonna apparently flirting with another guy, and threw her into the pool. On the set of the Dennis Hopper movie Colors, while still on probation for the incident in Tennessee, Penn beat up an extra who took his picture. Then there were reports that Madonna had shown up at the Cedar sinai emergency room in June 1987 
asking for x-rays because her husband had hit her in the head with a baseball bat. Finally, on June 23, 1987, Sean Penn was sentenced to 60 days in jail for parole violations. Sean was released from jail in September. In December, Madonna filed divorce papers, then withdrew them 12 days later. But the couple was estranged when Penn went off to shoot casualties of war in Thailand. And around this time, Madonna started something with John F. Kennedy Jr. and also started hanging out with Sandra Bernhard. The two went on David Letterman together and talked shit about Speed the Plow, the David Mamet play in which Madonna was starring on Broadway. And then they did some kind of skit in which Madonna took on the role of the cuckolded cuckold. I think it's time to fess up and get real. Honey, anytime you're ready, get real. I hate stuff like this. She doesn't give a damn about me. Oh, right. Is that right? She loves Sean. Well, I can understand that. She's been using me. Just to get to Sean. To get to Sean. Well... I introduced her to Sean three years ago at Warren Beatty's house. Listen to this, at Warren Beatty's house. I swear. (laughs) And she has been in love with him ever since. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. I'm not denying She doesn't care about me. Oh, well, that's that's She's been using me. Well... If David Letterman hated this stuff, imagine how Sean Penn would have reacted to his wife going on national television and airing an almost certainly ginned up bisexual love triangle scandal, clearly just for the publicity. The Letterman appearance happened during the summer of 1988. Madonna and Sean broke up for good sometime around the end of 1988. What specifically happened to end the relationship has been debated. Penn's version of the story is that in November 1988, the couple got into a fight over breakfast, and he asked Madonna to leave and threatened to cut off all her hair. And she called the cops and told them about Penn's threat, and also told them where he kept his guns. And then the SWAT team showed up at their house and found him in the kitchen eating cereal. And since he did make the threat and he did have the guns, he went away without a fight. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. There's another version of the story that's, well, longer and a little different. A side of the story that's been disseminated in worldwide tabloids, unauthorized biographies, and legal filings. According to that side of the story, Madonna kicked Sean out, and he moved in with his dad. Around Christmas, the estranged couple talked on the phone. Before this separation, Madonna had told Sean that she would take time off in 1989 and have a baby. Now, she told him, their marriage was over. She had met with Warren Beatty, Sean's friend, Warren Beatty, and she had accepted his offer to co-star in his movie, Dick Tracy. According to a police report later filed by Madonna, on December 28, 1988, 
Sean Penn broke into the Malibu home they had shared. Madonna was home, alone. They started arguing. He had been drinking. He told her he owned her. She tried to leave. He tried to tie her wrists together with a lamp cord. She got away and ran into the other room. He followed her and tied her to a chair. It was then, according to Madonna's report, when she was captive that he threatened to cut off all her hair. He eventually went out to buy more booze and left her bound and gagged. Eventually, she talked him into untying her, at which point she ran to her car. She locked the doors and used her car phone to call the cops, pen banging on the windows of the car all the while. She drove to the Malibu Sheriff's Department. The lieutenant who took Madonna's report in person claimed she walked in with a bloody lip. She had obviously been struck, said Lieutenant Bill McSweeney. He added, this was a woman in big trouble, no doubt about it. Whatever happened that night, in early January, Madonna filed for divorce and declined to press charges against her soon-to-be ex-husband. Three months later came the release of Like a Prayer. Madonna had been working on Like a Prayer throughout the final months of her marriage. Again, she co-wrote every song, but unlike on True Blue, this time it felt less like narcissism and more like autourism. Like a Prayer seemed like a huge step forward for the so-called material girl, both in terms of the level and quality of its songwriting, and as an overall concept. The album is literally and figuratively confessional, weaving together the themes of sex, religion, and death on nearly every song. It's blatantly a divorce record. At least two songs, Oh Father and Till Death Do Us Part, tell the stories of women in abusive relationships that they find themselves unable to leave. Even hit singles like Express Yourself and Cherish with their lyrics that seem to be about sexual empowerment or childish fantasies of romance take on a different tone when you imagine the woman singing them tied to a chair by her husband. And it's haunted by two ghosts, Madonna's now ex-husband and her mother who died when she was a child. When you think about Madonna as a 30-something ambivalent Catholic who went through adolescence and early adulthood without an adult female role model, and it was just had a marriage fall apart, the mixing of the themes of sex, death, and religion seems a lot less like purely empty provocation and a lot more like introspection. You may remember the controversy over the video for Like a Prayer, with its black Jesus and burning crosses, which Pepsi deemed an unacceptable bedfellow to the comparatively wholesome soda ad Madonna made for them at the same time, set to the same song. Pepsi dropped Madonna as spokeswoman, but she only gained from that controversy, and she went on to make a number of music videos which began to incorporate a much more sophisticated level of cinematic reference than Material Girl's appropriation of gentlemen prefer blondes. This point in Madonna's career happened to coincide with the peak of MTV serving as a kind of farm system for stylish directors who would go on to become auteur filmmakers, including Spike Jones, Mark Romanek, Jonathan Glazer, and David Fincher, who over the course of one year directed three Madonna videos. First, the clip for Express Yourself, which at $5 million was the most expensive music video ever made in 1989. The video was a sexual fantasy playing homage to Fritz Lang's sci-fi silent metropolis, 
literally aping some of that silent film's design and casting Madonna as both a masculine factory boss and an icon of femininity astride statuary. Then came the video for Oh Father, in which Madonna and Fincher directly reference Citizen Kane in the black and white visuals, while both narrativizing Madonna's childhood interrupted and casting her as a wife abused by a maker's mark swilling hunk. And finally, there was Vogue. The video for Vogue, in case you haven't seen it lately, was shot in black and white with the silvery sheen of old Hollywood still photography. It takes place in what appears to be a studio system era film set, with some shots framed around disembodied windows and staircases that feel left over from a Betty Davis movie. Several shots include the painted backdrop of a moody, cloudy, black and white melodrama sky. Some of Madonna's backup singers and dancers, most of them men, pose as though for glamour shots, while others, dressed as maids or butlers, tidy up, dusting, or picking up clothes. When a few of the dancers then start doing the voguing dance amidst drop cloth covered props and light stands, you get the sense that the workers are throwing an illicit dance party on an out-of-use soundstage after hours. Meanwhile, Madonna lip-syncs in a variety of costumes and styles, evoking a number of the women she eventually names in the song. Jean Harlow and Marilyn Monroe, but primarily Marlena Dietrich, the patron saint of sexually ambiguous movie glamour. There are many shots of Madonna having her hair and makeup done. Classic musicals are referenced. At one point, Madonna and a male dancer have a kind of Fred and Ginger-esque dance-off. Later, there's a shot in which a row of male dancers open their jackets in secession for a panning camera, Busby Berkeley style. But where Berkeley would stop on the face of a beautiful, smiling woman, Fincher stops on the torso of a woman, presumably Madonna, writhing in her cone bra. All of this adds up to say a few things. Beauty is constructed. Identity, including gender identity, is mutable. Fantasy can become reality. You can make yourself into anything. The Vogue video casts Madonna's own campaign to become a movie star as both a kind of self-actualization and a gate-crashing rebellion. It's a pep talk to the fans to whom she was making old Hollywood glamour accessible, and that was a very real thing. I was 10 years old in 1990 and the Vogue video turned into my gateway drug to Turner Classic Movies, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. But the video was also Madonna's pep talk to herself. And she'd need it. For as we'll see in part two of this episode, Madonna's next attempts to prove herself in movies and her next movie star romance had their own set of problems. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth, that's me, and Sean Penn was played by Noah Segan. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes of You Must Remember This at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We also have a wiki where you can suggest or endorse ideas for future episodes of this show. Find it at you must remember thiswikiacom Follow us on Twitter at rememberthispod. We'll continue the story of Madonna from Sean to Warren in three weeks. Join us next week as we explore the life and work of Humphrey Bogart before Lauren Bacall. Good night.